So it's a new year. It's a new year, new you. If any of you tweeted that. Some of you have. I know it. New year, new you. Not really sure what that means, but we're going to go with it, you know. 2018 is going to be a great year. I know that. I believe that. I trust that. I'm hoping for that. I'm praying that over all of you all. Praying that over our church. Believe that God has big things in store for 2018. I mean, let's be honest. When January hits... There is something that happens to our psyche. We begin to evaluate the last year. We begin to look forward to the next year. And we look forward with optimism. We look forward with hope. We look forward with excitement. I mean, none of us start January, maybe very few of us start January and say, you know what? This year is going to be terrible. I mean, it's going to be horrible. And there's nothing I can do about it. And I just know that it's going to be rough. Right? Even some of us here that have had difficult years, that 2017 was was not ideal. 2017 was a struggle and it was difficult and there was a lot of suffering involved. Still, when we start a new year, we are praying for exciting things. We are praying for big things. We are asking God to intervene and, and there's something about starting a new year that builds this hope in you, which is a good thing. We're praying for that. We're asking for that. You know, one of the things that happens and it's cliche, but I think it's true, is that when you start a new year, you begin to think about your health, right? You begin to think about, like, what am I eating? And am I exercising? I'm going to ask you to raise your hands right now, okay? How many of you in the past couple weeks, or maybe you're thinking about it now, or you have in the past couple months, you have started to experiment with changing your eating lifestyle? Raise your hand. And a lot of you that are like, because you don't, like, don't want to admit it for some reason. But like, I bet you it's half of the room. There's a lot of you here. You are like adding and removing things. You're restricting things. You're tying diets that no one's ever heard of. Because you're looking at your life. You're looking at your health. And you're saying, listen, I want to improve my health. I want to I lose some weight. I want to build some muscle. I want to have more energy. I want to have more focus. I just want to feel better. I want to eat better. I want to work out more. These things are important. These things are a priority in our life to maintain our health. And so we begin a year and we, we look at our health and we have goals and we have diet goals, we have eating goals, and many of you are experimenting with different diets. And here's what happens. When you have a problem in your life, the first thing you do is you identify the problem. So you're looking at your health and you're identifying, I want more muscle, I want to lose some weight, I want to have more energy during the day. And then you say, what is it to blame? What, what, what can I blame for the reason that I'm not where I want to be with my health? So you look at something to blame, and a lot of you are like, I'm blaming gluten. I'm blaming carbs. I'm blame, b- blaming not enough carbs. I'm blaming meat. I'm blaming milk. I'm blaming, I don't even know. Some of the, I, I don't even, like, the diets, I'm like, they're like, I'm on this diet. I'm like, okay, I have no idea what that means. You know, like, you're finding something to blame, and now you're restricting, and you're altering, you're removing that thing, right? Every diet does that. Vegetarians say meat's to blame. Got to take the meat out. Vegans say meat, dairy, and probably other things. I'm not really sure. Right? Gluten-free diets blame, well, gluten, right? There's a a new diet that I know a lot of you are experimenting with. It's called a keto diet. Didn't know this exists. Before I was on this group chat, they're talking about it. They're all praising it. It's like you blame carbs, right? No carbs, everything else. There's actually, this is true, this is a a diet that started as a trend. You're going to see this in 2018. There's a carnivore diet where you only eat meat. So you blame everything else. Only meat, like steak and eggs is all you eat. But this is how, it's interesting, right? I'm not 
advocating for or against any of these diets. I think some of the, uh, many of them have merit and they may be really good for you and they may be healthy and they may be great for you. And I think it's good to, to care about your health and to figure out how God has wired you and how you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. That's wonderful. But it's interesting how we assess problems, right? We have a problem, we identify it, and then we figure out who or what to blame for our problems. Oh, it's carbs, it's gluten, it's meat, it's everything but meat. And then we remove that thing from our life, and then we think that's going to solve the issue. Now, obviously, we can blame things, and some things are, in fact, negatively affecting us. You may need to remove gluten. You may need to remove meat. You may need to remove carbs. Those things may help. But life is not as simple as that, right? You can't just look at all of your problems and identify them and say, that person's to blame, that thing's to blame. And I'm just going to remove that thing, and all of a sudden my problems are going to go away. It's not that easy. And so as we look at 2018, as we look for a good year, oftentimes what happens is we begin to assess the problems that we have in our life, and then we blame other people, and we blame other things, and then our, our objective for the year is just to remove those people and those things from our life, and then we think that everything's going to be okay, but it's not that simple. Have you ever been driving in your car and you've heard that sound that makes your heart drop? You know that sound, right? You're just driving like, and you look, and then it's you, and you pull over. What is, you get pulled over by the cop, and the cop's walking up to the, the window, and what do all of us do in our minds? You begin to think to yourself, like, what am I going to blame? Right? There's something in you. You're like, what's the approach I'm going to take here? You're like, officer, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, my mind was on this really terrible thing that's happening in my life, and I just wasn't paying attention to the speed limit. Or you think to yourself, officer, I'm so sorry, I, you know, I've, my first time driving this road, I didn't realize that it's 45, not 65. Or officer, I'm sorry, I, I tried to hit the brake, but I hit the gas and went right through the stop sign. You know, silly me. See, we are so quick to blame things. We blame so many things and so many people. It's never us. It's always someone else. It's always something else. And so our approach to fixing problems in our life and, and moving past suffering and setbacks and difficulties and hardships is just to remove people or things that we're blaming. And this is especially true in our pain. In those aspects of your life that you're really suffering, where you're really struggling, where you feel a lot of pain, one of the natural human reactions is to blame someone. And that person oftentimes is God. Right? Don't you feel that? We blame him really easily because we think he doesn't love us or he's taking us in a course. Maybe we've done something wrong and he's judging us. And so we blame God. And tonight we're going to look at what happens in the life of Joseph who is going to go through some immense suffering. And we're going to contemplate what does it mean to blame God in the midst of your suffering and, and what is the response we're supposed to have when we're really struggling, we're facing hardships and we have problems in our life. So last week in uh, Overcome in episode one, we were looking at Joseph, who is now the new character in the story. It was Jacob in season one, and now in season two, it's Joseph, his son. He's the 11th son of 12. And what we found out last week is that he's loved. He's loved by his father above all the other brothers. He's received this coat. It's a coat of royalty. It's a symbol that he's going to receive the fortune and the blessing and dad loves him and dad does not love the other brothers. 
We know that he's 17 years old. He's just an assistant with the shepherding situation, but he has it all. He's got a great path ahead of him, and the brothers are jealous of him, and the brothers hate him. And then Joseph goes and tells his brothers and his family about these two dreams that he has. And the dreams are about how God is going to elevate him to a position of power and authority and success where his brothers and his father and his mother and his whole family will bow before him. And you can completely understand how they took that. Not very well. And they're angry. And the story ends with this cliffhanger. And you know that something is going to happen this week. You know that something is going to happen in this episode in the life of Joseph that's not going to be good and the brothers are going to be involved. And that's where we pick up the story. So what's happened now is the brothers have left and they've left without Joseph. They're out in the fields and they are shepherding the sheep. They're taking them around to different pastures and they're feeding them. And Joseph is with dad. He's hanging out with dad. And Jacob says to his son, Joseph, he says, listen, you need to go join your brothers. I know you're 17, you're just an assistant, but you need to go join your brothers. We don't know why. Maybe dad's thinking like some good old shepherding is going to fix the problems. You know, go out there, find your brothers, help them out. Maybe this will help ease some of this dysfunction and tension in the family. And so Joseph says, okay. And so he leaves to go find his brothers. And it says he goes to this place called Shechem. He heads out to Shechem. That's where his brothers are supposed to be. And he looks around and his brothers aren't there. He's wandering in a field and a stranger, a man, we don't know who he is, comes up to Joseph and says, listen, are you looking for your brothers? They're not here. They're in Dothan, another town, another region. And Dothan is 13 miles away from Shechem. So he couldn't have been excited about that news. You know, he's like, okay, well, okay, well, now I got to go there. So he heads off to Dothan. This entire journey to find his brothers, Joseph has spent a many days, probably weeks, he's been traveling about 50 miles to find his brothers. He's exhausted, he's tired, he's probably frustrated, he's been bouncing around from here to there, lost, and he's finally approaching his brothers in Dothan, and this is where we pick up in our text. It says this in verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. So this is the perfect situation for the brothers. This couldn't be better. Joseph is a long ways off, they see him, maybe he doesn't see them, and they have time to discuss what they're gonna do. They hate Joseph. They do not want him in their life anymore. And so they discuss what is going to happen. And they decide our best approach is to kill him. So they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. See, they hate Joseph so much, they won't even identify him by his name. They won't call him Joseph. They're going to call him this dreamer. The thing they hate most about him. His dreams of success and power. That's the thing that they want. And they can't stand Joseph because God gave him those dreams. And so they identify him by the thing they hate about him. This is true, right? You know that you hate somebody and you have issues with somebody when you will not identify them by their name. When you say things like, oh, here comes Mr. Talker. Yep, there he comes, right? Or you say, oh, look at the perfect couple over there. Oh, they're, they're so in love, you know. Here comes Mrs. Successful. You know, everything's great in her life. Look at Mr. and Mrs. Skinny over there. They're looking great, right? When I identify people by the thing that we either hate about them or the thing that causes insecurity in us, we know that we have issues with them. We know that we probably hate them. And this is what happens with the brothers. They look at Joseph and they can't stand him. They don't want to be around him. They want nothing to do with him. And they identify him by the fact that he's a dreamer. He's been given these dreams. And they say this, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. 
Then we will say that a fierce animal devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So we're going to see how these dreams are going to play out. Where we're going to bow to him, and he's going to have all his power and authority once we kill him and throw him into this pit right here. We're going to see who's talking now. And so it says that Reuben, this is the oldest brother, when he heard the plan, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. So Reuben, the oldest brother, steps in as they're talking, as Joseph is approaching. And he says, listen, we're not going to kill him. Let's not kill him. So here's Reuben's plan as he steps in courageously and to show mercy to Joseph. He says, let's not shed blood, but throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him. Let's not hurt him. Let's not rough him up. Let's not kill him. Let's throw him in this pit that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. The, the English translation of the Hebrew reads a little awkward, but here's what Reuben is saying. Listen, let's not kill him. But instead, let's kind of show him a lesson. When he gets here, we're going to grab him, we're going to take him, we're going to throw him in this pit. And we're going to make him sit there. We're going to make him stay there. We'll determine how long that's going to be. And then let me rescue him out of there and then I will return him back to his father. That will teach him a lesson. Hopefully that will work. And Reuben's also thinking that it's going to be good for me because then I'm going to be the hero that rescued Joseph out of the pit. Maybe I'll finally get what I think I deserve as the oldest, which is the blessing and the fortune and, and the coat. And so that's the plan. It says that the brothers listened to him when Verse 23, it says that Joseph came to his brothers and they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore and they took him and threw him into the pit, but the pit was empty and there was no water in it. See, the pit here is a cistern. These were placed all throughout the region. It's a very dry region. So they, they dig these big holes that would hold water. And they were anywhere from 6 to 20 feet deep. This is probably a very deep cistern, maybe 20 feet deep. And... It would have been a perfect place for a dungeon. And that's what they use it for. They take him of his clothes. He's probably now naked and exhausted. And he's already been traveling for 50 miles. And they take him, take his clothes off, and they throw him into this cistern that they use as a pit. And certainly he is right now in physical pain, but he's in deep emotional pain too. Can you imagine what he's feeling? He's thinking to himself, my brothers hate me so much that they're going to strip me naked and throw me down 20 feet in the pit when I'm exhausted. I probably haven't eaten much. They don't want anything to do with me. They don't want me in their life at all. We don't know, but it wouldn't be far-fetched to imagine that as Joseph is sitting naked in the bottom of this pit, that he's praying a prayer to God similar to what David prays in Psalm 22. David pray prays this prayer to God in Psalm 22 when he's feeling forsaken, when he's feeling abandoned, when he himself feels like he's in the bottom of a pit naked and nobody wants anything to do with him. And he says famously, God, why have you forsaken me? Joseph may have been feeling similar. Here's what David says in Psalm 22. He says, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast, and my strength is dried up. When you're suffering and when you're facing hardship, don't those words ring true? 
when, when you're praying and you're, and you're talking to God and, and you're just contemplating where you're at in your life and you're like, God, why? Does it feel like God is answering? You feel like you have no strength. You can't go forward. Your heart is all tangled up. You're poured out like water. You see, we all go through times in our life, and many of you are in these, this place right now where it feels like you're in a pit, and sometimes that pit is six feet deep. It's a, it's a setback at work that is really affecting you. It's a roadblock that you can't seem just to move through some of the goals that you have. It's a prairie quest that you are praying over and over again that you're asking God to answer. It's something that you desire in your life. But sometimes the pit is 12 feet deep. It's a dysfunctional relationship that's not healed and doesn't seem like it's going to get any better. It's a career that you don't enjoy at all. And you've been asking God to show you what you're supposed to do and, and where you're supposed to give your time and your talent. That you might wake up and enjoy it and, and you have no answers. feels like that. It's love that you haven't found it's doubt in your faith that you can't seem to move past. It's fear about the future that is causing you anxiety. And it's hard to move day in, day out. But sometimes the pit's also 20 feet deep. It's a disease. It's a divorce that you're going through. It's the loss of a loved one. It's a tragedy that you're facing. It's an event that you know is going to alter your life forever. And it's never going to be the same. And when we are in the pit, whether it's six feet or 12 feet or 20 feet deep, the natural reaction, the feeling that we have is like David and it's probably like Joseph is feeling right now, which is, God, why? Why aren't you answering? Why don't you intervene? Are you going to do something? I don't have any more strength. I can't keep going. I, can't, I don't feel like I can keep praying anymore. And Joseph is sitting there, this probably 20 feet deep pit, and he certainly feels like it's 20 feet deep. And he's just waiting to see what his brothers are going to do with him. And it says this in verse 25, that they sat down to eat. <laughs> They've just stripped their brother of his clothes and thrown him in a pit, and now it's time for lunch. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and they're with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? We have a new leader now. Reuben is no longer the leader. The new leader is Judah who steps up and says, guys, why should we kill our brother? Instead, let's make some money off of him. There's these merchants coming through. We can sell him as a servant. We can sell him as a slave and make some money. And then we can still tell dad that he was killed by a fierce animal. Verse 27 says, Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. Right? It seems like he's being merciful. Let's not kill him. He's our brother. You know? When he wanted to kill him just a moment ago, let's not kill him. He's our brother, but that would be hard for us to deal with. Instead, let's make some money off of him and give him to these merchants. And who cares what happens to him? We don't need to know. He's going to be down in Egypt. It says that the brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph to Egypt. So the Ishmaelites have come by, they, they take him out of the pit, 
and they say, listen, we want, we want to sell our brother to you as a slave. We'll sell him for 20 shekels. Well, here's what's interesting. The normal price in terms of selling another person into slavery as a servant was 30 shekels. So like, we're going to sell our brother to you at a discount. Just get him out of our hands. We don't want anything to do with him. Take him down to Egypt so we never have to deal with him again. And they sell him for 20 shekels. And Reuben, who isn't present in this conversation, he maybe went away to check on the sheep. We don't know where he is. He comes back and he realizes that Jacob or Joseph is gone. That he's been sold to the Ishmaelites heading down to Egypt. And he is mad. <laughs> he is upset. He had this whole plan. It was going to be good for him. It was going to teach Joseph a lesson. And, and so he's like, what are we going to do now? I mean, how are we going to respond? I'm the oldest brother. I have to go back to dad and tell him what happened. And so they have a new plan. And the new plan is that they're going to take his coat that they have. And they're going to soak it in goat's blood. And they're going to come back and they're going to say, dad, listen, we found this. We're pretty sure that it's Joseph's. And that a fierce animal ate all of him. Because all we found was this coat. And it says that his, their father, Jacob, believed him. And he was utterly destroyed. They couldn't even comfort or console him. And the episode ends with another cliffhanger. It says this in verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him to e in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, the captain of the guard. So you know that so now maybe this is part of God's plan. We don't know. He's been sold to a high-ranking official in Egypt We'll see how that's going to unfold. But before we move too much further in the story, I want to take a moment and just think about Joseph and what he's feeling and what he's going through. He had everything before. He was only 17 years old, but he had a future laid out for him that was wonderful and incredible with authority and power. And he had the coat and he had the money coming from dad. He was going to be the leader of the family. He was loved by his father. I mean, every single thing he had. And now he has been stripped of all of that. He has felt the pain of his brother's hatred as they took off his clothes and threw him in a pit. And now they've sold him into slavery, heading down to Egypt, which is the country or the city of death. He wasn't physically killed, but he's heading to a place of death. And he's tied up probably, and he's walking alongside of a camel, and he's thinking all of these things. He's processing these things. He's not literally in the pit anymore, but certainly he doesn't feel like he's out of it. See, Joseph is, is in the valley, and we're never told what he's feeling. We're never told what his prayers are like in the moment. Maybe he's praying like David, God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? How is this a part of your plan? I thought you told me that you had great things for me, that I was going to be powerful and I was going to be successful. And were those dreams a lie? I'm tied up right now heading to Egypt. We don't know. But we do know this, because it's true of us, that when we suffer, it causes us to doubt, right? Suffering causes doubt. When we are in the pit, when we feel like we're in the pit, whether it's six feet deep or 12 or 20 feet deep, the natural reaction is to look up to God and say, God, why? <laughs> I thought you were good. I thought you were loving. I thought you were in control. I thought you had a great plan for me, and this does not feel like it. And I've been asking you to change it. I've been asking you to fix it. 
It doesn't feel like you're answering. There's something about being in the pit. There's something about suffering that causes this existential crisis. You don't have to raise your hand because I know every single one of you would raise your hand if I asked you to, which is this. Have you, have you ever asked this question before in the midst of your pain and your suffering? How can God, who is all good and all powerful, allow evil and allow suffering? It doesn't seem to connect. It's the trilemma, right? You have a God who is all good and all powerful, and then yet when we look at the world, we look at our life and the lives of others, it doesn't seem very good. It seems like there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of evil. And then we actually add to that, right? We say, okay, God's not only all good, he's not only all powerful, but he's also all loving and he's all knowing. How does that all mesh with the reality of this world? In our life, there's an apologist, Ravi Zacharias, and I think he, he responds to this question really well. He says, you know, when we assume that there's evil and we call something evil, it means that we're assuming that there's good, right? In order for you to know something is evil, you have to know that, you have to believe that there's something good to balance it, to distinguish between the two. And so if you believe in evil and if you believe in good, then you believe in a moral law. You may think to yourself, well, I, I don't believe in a moral law. We have to because we would have no basis to say and to make a claim that something is evil or good if there's no moral law because then that would just be good for you and maybe evil for me and evil for me and good for you. So we have no right to even ask the question unless we believe in a moral law that there is in fact things that are evil and things that are good. And so if we believe in a moral law, then we must in fact believe in a moral law giver. We must believe that there's an author of this standard or of this law that is written in every human heart that we just sense and we believe and we know that this is wrong and this is right. You see, we can't just believe that somehow we've just created this law out of thin air that doesn't make any sense because we believe it in our soul. Every single one of us does. And no other animals do. They don't distinguish whether or not killing this animal or killing this thing is good or evil. They just live. It's just survival. But yet we interact differently. We feel something different because there is, in fact, a moral law giver who's given us a moral law and we can distinguish between good and evil. Isn't it interesting then that even when we ask the question to disprove God by saying, I can't believe in God because you claim that he's all good and you claim that he's all powerful, but there's evil. You have to actually assume God to even ask the question because you have to assume that there's a being that has given us this moral law. But here's the reality, right? We ask this philosophical question. You maybe asked it before. Maybe you're wrestling through that now, but that's not the real question. There's a deeper question that we all ask, and that's this. Why do bad things happen to me? and those that I love. I don't feel like I deserve this. It's a question of pain and suffering. It's a question of broken relationships. It's a question of broken expectations. It's a question of being in the pit and saying, I thought, God, you're good. I thought you're loving. I thought you're powerful. I thought you had a plan. Why this? That's the real question. 
You see, deep down, when we begin to process our, our suffering and our pain and our hardships and things that we're going through in life, we really do connect with David. Probably connect with the same things that Joseph is feeling, which is, why God? I heard this story about this, this woman, and she was born with the inability to feel pain. She couldn't feel pain. She could lean on the stove and think about her week and, and not realize that her arm is burning until she smelled it. She could not feel pain at all. And you think about that and you think, man, that's awesome. Like, I hate pain. You know, like I, I'm running up the stairs too fast and I stub my toe and it's like my world's over for the whole week. You ever hit your funny bone? That's not funny, you know? It's like, man, that's all, but it's not. It's a great curse. Because she can be walking and she can step on a nail and just keep going throughout her day and die from blood loss and never know it. Because she can't feel any pain. Her mother has been said to be praying that a miracle would happen in her life where she'd be able to feel pain again. Because it's a great curse. You see, pain is difficult and pain is hard. It's not to be made light of, but pain signals that something is wrong. And so maybe in God's infinite wisdom, he allows for pain to happen to signal to us that something is wrong. That something is wrong with us. That something is wrong with the human condition. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, pain reveals to us that we need a savior, that we need to be rescued, that we need someone to intervene in our life. I've heard it like this, that question, that philosophical question that we ask of how can an all-good and all-powerful God allow evil? What if we reverse the question around and what if we said it like this? How can an all-good and all-powerful God, why would he choose to love an evil person like me? That's an important question to ask because it's not too difficult to look in your own life and to look in your own heart and to say, man, how could God love me? How does that make any sense? Why does he judge me for every little thought and every little action and every little thing that I've done? Why would he give me anything good? Why would he have a plan for me when I constantly seek to mess it up? Well, see, here's the good news is that God's plans don't make sense to our finite minds because he does love you and he does love us and he has promised that he's working good in your life. So we don't know the reasons why God allows evil. We don't know why God takes us through valleys and puts us in the pit and allows us to feel pain and setbacks and hardship. But we do know and we can trust that he loves us. Suffering causes us to doubt like David did like Joseph maybe was, but the reality is that this all-good and all-powerful God does in fact love you and he's constantly with you. And two chapters later, it tells us this. In chapter 39, it says that the Lord was with Joseph. He was with him in the pit. He was with him when he's walking, tied up next to the camel down to Egypt, and he was with him in Egypt. He is with him the entire time. And we may not understand it and it may be difficult to face the reality of our current situation. 
And God empathizes and loves us and he's there for us in the midst of that. And he's not asking for you or for me to understand his plan, but he is asking us to trust it. And we can trust it because Jesus, who is the better Joseph, he laid aside his coat, his symbol of royalty, his symbol of power, he laid it aside and he became one of us. A slave, a servant. And he humbled himself even further by giving his life over, his innocent life over to death on a cross. And he did it willingly for you and for me. Philippians 2 reminds us of that. It tells us that Jesus laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like man. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as to actually die a criminal's death on the cross. So here's the question. When you are in the pit, when you are suffering, when you are struggling, when it feels like God has forsaken you and he's not answering and he's not intervening, how are you to respond? You're to respond with praise. It's like, what praise? Yeah. We're to respond with praise. David, in Psalm 22, the same psalm where he's praying to God, why have you forsaken me and why are you not answering me and I have no strength and I cannot move forward and I am exhausted. He says these words as well. He says, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, Glorify him and stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him and he cried to him. You see, your suffering is not God's judgment. Your suffering is not God's displeasure. Your suffering is not God's lack of action in your life because of something you've done or something you haven't done. David reminds us that we're to praise him when we're in the pit because God is working in your life. Here's the reality. The reality is, is that your suffering means that you have God's attention, that he's listening to you. He will cry with you. He empathizes with what you're going through, but he's asking you to praise him and to trust him that he's working good in your life, that he has a plan for you. You see, when you look at Joseph's life and you think to yourself from his perspective, Man, how is, this any, how is this good at all? He had everything. He lost everything. He felt his brother's hatred. He's now sold to slavery, and he's walking down to Egypt. And Joseph may have been feeling, man, God, how is this good? But see, we know the story. And we know that every little thing that happened had to happen the exact way. Jacob had to tell Joseph to go find his brothers. Joseph had to be found by this man that sent him to Dothan, so his brothers would conspire against him as he's walking up. Reuben had to intervene and to say, let's not kill him. So they didn't kill him on the spot. They threw him in a pit. Then Judah had to step up and say, let's make some money off of him and sell him to these merchants to go down to Egypt. Because when he gets to Egypt, God is going to continue working in his life. And eventually he's going to raise Joseph up to, spoiler alert, the second highest, most influential person in all of Egypt. And it's going to save his life and the entire life of his family because there's going to be a famine. And Joseph is going to be able to care for his family in the midst of that famine. If none of those things happen and Joseph was killed or Joseph refused to go out to meet his brothers, Joseph and his whole family would have died in that famine. 
You see, God is working in Joseph's life and in the life of the brothers and in the life of Jacob. You may not be able to see it, but he is. And he asks us in the midst of the pit to trust him and to praise him, even though it's difficult, because he wants you to know that he loves you and he's working good for you. Let's pray.